0: The Martian pilot pulled up on the controls, but it was no use. The ship was going to crash. She looked
1: out the view screen at the massive lake in the distance. Her superiors told her it was called Lake Baikal, located in a remote place called Siberia. Their mission had been so close to succeeding, and now her people might never get the water they so desperately needed.
0: A new alarm broke the pilot out of her reverie. The propulsion core had reached critical levels. They only had a few minutes until the ship was reduced to atoms.
1: Far below, the pilot could see a tiny settlement ensconced within the sprawling forest. If she didn't act fast, everyone living there would be annihilated when the propulsion core failed.
0: Using all the force she could muster, the pilot veered the ship away from the settlement and out towards the endless wilderness. A
1: warning came over the loudspeakers. Core failure in five, four.
0: The pilot closed her eyes as the ship plummeted down towards the trees. Three, two, one. She never even felt the explosion. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. This is Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly.
1: And I'm your host, Richard. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth.
0: This is our second episode on the Tunguska event, a massive explosion that decimated the forested landscape of central Siberia on June 30th, 1908. Last week, we
1: experienced the explosion through various eyewitness accounts. We also followed the story of Russian mineralogist Leonid Kulik as he studied the Tunguska event through the 1920s and 30s and eventually came to believe that it occurred when a meteorite exploded over an area known as the Southern
0: Swamp. This week, we'll follow the stories of some of the scientists who continued Kulik's work after his death in World War II. We'll dive into some of the more unconventional theories that attempted to explain the Tunguska event and see if they supplanted Kulik's belief that a meteorite explosion caused the destruction.
1: At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCastNetwork.
0: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information.
1: You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: In 1938, 55-year-old mineralogist Leonid Kulik made a breakthrough in his study of the Tunguska event when he completed aerial photography of the explosion's epicenter.
1: With a bird's-eye view of the landscape at his disposal, one of Kulik's colleagues helped him realize that the Tunguska event might have been the result of a meteorite exploding in midair. Therefore, there wouldn't be any impact crater.
0: Unfortunately, Kulik had to put his investigation into the Tunguska event on hold when the Nazi army invaded Russia in June 1941. Although he was almost 60 years old and exempt from military service, Kulik was a devoted patriot and joined a volunteer fighting unit. In 1942, Kulik suffered a leg injury while fighting on the front lines. He was taken to a prisoner of war camp, where he contracted typhus.
1: Leonid Kulik died on April 24, 1942. But his work didn't die with him. His passion for the subject had inspired an entire generation of geophysicists and mineralogists. After World War II ended in 1945, this new wave of Soviet scientists picked up Kulik's mantle and tried to unravel
0: the mystery of the
1: Tunguska event.
0: One of the most out-of-the-box thinkers was Russian scientist Alexander Kazantsev. Born in 1906 in the Siberian town of Akhmerinsk, Kazantsev had grown up hearing stories of the massive explosion that flattened the forest around the southern swamp.
1: After graduating from the Tomsk Technological Institute in 1930, Kazantsev was appointed to the post of head mechanic of the Boloryetsk Metallurgical Plant in the Ural Mountains. But his interests went beyond
0: fixing machines. Kazantsev possessed an inquisitive mind and competitive nature. In the 1930s, he became a master chess player and published several books on game strategy. He was also interested in science fiction. In 1936, he won a national competition for sci-fi screenplays. His script, Aranita, would go on to be adapted into a best-selling novel called The Burning Island.
1: Like Leonid Kulik, Kazantsev was a fierce patriot, and he was eager to join the fight when the Nazis invaded Russia in 1941. Even though he was still of fighting age at 35 years old, the Soviet government felt his technological expertise made him too valuable to be wasted on the front lines.
0: Kazantsev was appointed the head engineer of a Russian weapons complex and spent most of the war testing new technology in the remote Siberian tundra. As he
1: watched his bombs decimate the Siberian landscape, Kazantsev was reminded of the stories he had heard about the Tunguska event from his childhood. He knew the conventional
0: wisdom was that a meteorite had caused the explosion. But Kazantsev was anything but conventional. Ever the contrarian, he wondered if there could be another explanation.
1: After World War II ended with the atom bomb being dropped over Hiroshima, Kazantsev began to consider the Tunguska mystery more seriously. About a month after the bomb was dropped, Kazantsev and a delegation of Soviet scientists visited Hiroshima to collect data and make observations.
0: As Kazantsev wandered Hiroshima's devastated streets, he couldn't help but notice the similarities between the nuclear explosion's effects and the images he had seen of the Tunguska events' epicenter at the southern swamp.
1: The site that triggered this comparison was a grove of trees near the Hiroshima explosion's epicenter. Although the trees were charred and stripped of their leaves, they had somehow stayed upright. Further out, entire houses had toppled, and yet these trees had
0: withstood the blast. Kazantsev had heard that in the southern swamp, there was a grove of trees that had withstood the Tunguska event. Although the rest of the forest for miles around had snapped like a twig, those sentinels had stood tall.
1: Now that Kazantsev thought of it, the explosion itself had striking similarities to a nuclear bomb— When a shopkeeper named Semyon Semyonov witnessed the Tunguska event 35 miles from the epicenter, the first thing he saw was a bright flash of light. Similarly, in a nuclear blast, the first thing you see is a flash of light before hearing or feeling the explosion.
0: In a nuclear detonation, this flash is followed by a 300,000 degrees Celsius thermal wave radiating from the explosion at the speed of light. Although the wave's power quickly dissipates within a one-mile radius, it immediately sets anything made of wood aflame. And wood within two miles becomes heavily charred. Semyon Semyonov described feeling an intense burst of
1: heat only moments after seeing the flash of the explosion. Traveling at the speed of light, it would have reached him in under a second.
0: This thermal wave would also explain the burn pattern in the forest around the southern swamp. Rather than exhibiting the signs of a more traditional progressive fire, the trees had a uniform burn pattern. They all had burst into flame simultaneously.
1: After the initial thermal burst, the next event in a nuclear explosion is a powerful shockwave. During nuclear tests, although this shock wave traveled slower than the thermal burst, It was still capable of traversing a mile in under three seconds and was powerful enough to flatten structures and extinguish the fires that the thermal wave had created.
0: This phenomenon would account for why the forest fire near the southern swamp didn't spread further. Additionally, it would be consistent with the pattern of fallen trees. As the wave traveled from the explosion's epicenter, it would have knocked all the trees down in the same direction.
1: After the shockwave, a nuclear explosion ends with the iconic image of the mushroom cloud blooming in the atmosphere. In Hiroshima, the mushroom cloud rose more than 40,000 feet into the air and was visible from over 400 miles away.
0: Many of the witnesses who experienced the Tunguska event described the visuals of the explosion in terms very similar to a mushroom cloud. One of them recalled the site as a huge flame that cut the sky in two.
1: A massive outpouring of smoke followed this fiery, spear-like pillar. The description, while not an exact match, evoked the imagery of
0: a nuclear mushroom cloud. After the atomic explosion ripped through Hiroshima, a dark, dirty rain descended on the city. The same weather pattern had occurred in the Tunguska event's aftermath.
1: A nuclear blast would also explain the strange light patterns that appeared over Europe's night skies following the Tunguska event. After a nuclear bomb test at Almogordo, New Mexico in July 1945, the ionized air reached all the way into the upper atmosphere. The otherworldly violet glow was reminiscent of the northern lights, which occur when charged particles from the sun cause electrons in Earth's atmosphere to emit additional light.
0: Carried by the powerful winds in the upper atmosphere, the residual light effects from the Alamogordo test could be seen around the world in the form of atmospheric glows and lengthy sunsets. The displays were less dramatic than what people saw after the Tunguska event, but some experts have estimated that the Tunguska explosion was 50 times more powerful than Hiroshima. As he
1: put the pieces together, Alexander Kazantsev
0: became convinced that a nuclear
1: bomb had triggered the Tunguska event.
0: But there was one major hurdle standing in the way of this theory. Nuclear bombs didn't exist in 1908.
1: The concept of the atom had existed since ancient Greece, but physicist Ernest Rutherford's accurate atomic model wasn't created until 1911, three years after the Tunguska event. It wasn't until 1933 that Hungarian-American scientist Leo Szilard proposed the idea of using atomic nuclei to
0: release energy in a chain reaction. As the head of a weapons complex, Kazantsev was well acquainted with the USSR's technological capabilities. He would have known that the Soviet Union hadn't yet developed its own atomic bomb in 1946. So if the Soviets weren't responsible for the blast in the southern swamp in 1908, who was?
1: If the Tunguska event explosion was nuclear in nature, Kazantsev figured that the device had to have come from somewhere else. It must have come from outer space.
0: Coming up, Alexander Kazantsev's out-of-the-box theory creates a schism within the scientific community. And now, back to the story. In
1: 1945, Alexander Kazantsev was sent as part of a Soviet delegation to collect data from the atomic strike on Hiroshima. As Kazantsev observed the horrific devastation, he was reminded of photos of the charred
0: forest around the southern swamp in Siberia. While most scientists agreed that the explosion from the Tunguska event was the result of a meteorite strike, Kazantsev thought there were too many similarities between Tunguska and Hiroshima. Even though it happened 37 years before the first atom bomb was developed, Kazantsev was convinced that the Tunguska event was the result of a nuclear explosion. Since human
1: technology was ruled out, Kazantsev's theory was that the explosion of an atomic-powered alien spaceship had caused the Tunguska event.
0: In a 1946 edition of the Russian science magazine Vokrug-Sivieta, Kazantsev proposed that the extraterrestrial vessel was a Martian ship on a mission to collect fresh water from Lake Baikal in Siberia. Kazantsev believed that there was no water on Mars, and thus, for Martian civilization to survive, they would have to collect their water from Earth. And Lake Baikal was the ideal place to get it. Known
1: as the Galapagos of Russia, Lake Baikal is notable for its isolation from human civilization. Located only a few hundred miles from the southern swamp, it is the world's deepest lake and contains 20% of the planet's
0: unfrozen freshwater reserve. For a group of Martians wishing to avoid detection, Lake Baikal would be the perfect place to collect a valuable resource that their home planet lacked. But Kazantsev suspected that something had gone wrong.
1: The Tunguska events epicenter was far too remote to be a deliberate attack on humanity. Kazantsev believed that the alien ship experienced a critical failure, and the pilots flew it to a remote area so the ensuing blast wouldn't take any innocent lives.
0: While some researchers thought that Kazantsev's idea was ridiculous, many began to seriously consider it. Hiroshima had opened their eyes to technology's destructive power.
1: In June of 1947, Kazantsev's seemingly far-fetched theory gained even more traction when an American pilot named Kenneth Arnold reportedly spotted flying saucers over Washington state. This sighting was the genesis of the UFO movement, turning the idea of aliens from the stuff of science fiction into a terrifying reality. The possibility that a UFO had exploded over Siberia 40 years earlier was not as crazy as it initially may have seemed.
0: But not everyone in the scientific community was convinced. Leonid Kulik's theory that a meteorite had caused the Tunguska event was still very much in vogue, and many of his colleagues stood up for their fallen comrade.
1: Writing in the Russian periodical Science in Life A group of prominent Soviet astronomers wrote, There is no question that immediately after the meteorite fall, a crater-like depression formed where now the southern swamp exists. It was relatively small and soon became inundated with water. In subsequent years, it was covered by silt and moss, filled with peat hummocks and partly overgrown with bushes. The dead trees standing upright can be seen not at the center of the catastrophe, but on the hillsides surrounding the hollow.
0: However, these scientists were off the mark as well. They were still fixated on the idea of finding an impact crater from the meteorite, even though the most likely indication was that it had burst in midair. Additionally, They were wrong about the upright trees, which were in fact located closer to the explosion's epicenter.
1: With neither side willing to give ground, the debate surrounding the Tunguska event quickly turned bitter. But a solution to the mystery wouldn't be found in a science journal. To get to the truth, they had to keep sending expeditions to the southern swamp.
0: Since the end of World War II, the Soviet government had been preoccupied with the Cold War against the United States. But eventually, the noise surrounding the Tunguska event had grown too loud to ignore. In
1: 1958, Kazantsev expanded on his spaceship theory in a story called A Guest from the Cosmos. His insistence that the Tunguska event wasn't a natural event enraged meteorite experts.
0: Kirill Floriansky, a geochemist and planetologist at the USSR Academy of Science, was particularly furious. Kazantsev was unraveling all the work Kulik had done on the Tunguska event, and Floriansky wouldn't stand for it. At
1: Floriansky's behest, the
0: Academy of Science's
1: Committee on Meteorites organized another expedition to the southern swamp in 1958. As the expedition's leader he was determined to settle the Tunguska event controversy once and for all.
0: As was the case during Kulik's expeditions throughout the 1920s and 30s, the 1958 group found no trace of an impact crater. But that didn't mean they didn't find anything noteworthy.
1: Although Floriansky respected Kulik's work, he realized that his predecessor had been too focused on finding evidence of an impact crater. Kulik had never gotten the chance to test the theory that the Tunguski event was the result of a meteorite airburst.
0: Rather than continue searching for clues in the wider landscape, Floriansky decided to analyze soil samples from the explosion's epicenter for traces of meteoric elements. His hunch turned out to be correct. The soil contained
1: microscopic silicate and magnetite spheres, These materials are commonly found in asteroids and seemingly confirmed that the Tunguski event was the result of a mid-air meteorite burst.
0: However, proponents of the nuclear theory felt Floriansky's results were far from conclusive. Although silicates and magnetite were commonly found in meteors, they did also occur naturally on Earth. In June 1959, Moscow Institute of Aviation Aerodynamics professor and UFO enthusiast Felix Ziegel came to Kazantsev's defense.
1: In an article published in Knowledge is Strength
0: magazine,
1: Ziegel wrote, At the present time, like it or not, A.N. Kazantsev's hypothesis is the only realistic one insofar as it explains the absence of a meteorite crater and the explosion of a cosmic body in the air.
0: Zeigel wasn't the only one to support Kazantsev's theory either. In 1959 and 1960, a geophysicist named Alexei Zulitov headed an expedition to see if there was any evidence that a nuclear explosion caused the Tunguska event. While they didn't find any fragments from an alien spaceship, they did discover traces of radiation in the soil.
1: But it wasn't enough to definitively prove that there had been a nuclear explosion. Radiation can naturally occur in soil for many reasons, such as the natural decay of elements like uranium.
0: The radiation in the southern swamp was fairly consistent. If it had been the result of a nuclear detonation, the radiation would have been higher, closer to the epicenter.
1: However, those who believed the alien spaceship hypothesis weren't discouraged. They took the radiation as a sign that they were on the right track.
0: Meanwhile, Kirill Floriansky couldn't believe that his research was being questioned. He thought that he had sufficiently proved that the Tunguska event was a result of a mid-air meteorite explosion. But with the UFO proponents calling his methods into question... Floriensky was forced to mount two more expeditions to the southern swamp in 1961 and 1962.
1: In May of 1962, Floriensky presented his findings at the 10th Soviet Conference on Meteorites. Right off the bat, he tried to warn his colleagues about the nuclear explosion theory. He wrote, While I am aware of the advantages of sensational publicity in drawing public attention to a problem, It should be stressed that unhealthy interest aroused as a result of distorted facts and misinformation should never be used as a basis for the furtherance of scientific knowledge.
0: Floriansky's biggest discovery from his expeditions was that the silicate and magnetite spheres he found in the soil were also high in nickel, a major characteristic of meteoric rock.
1: Floriansky believed his discovery conclusively proved that a meteorite had exploded over the southern swamp. However, his expeditions did add another wrinkle to the Tunguska event. During their survey of the southern swamp, Floriansky and his associates discovered
0: a small body of water they called Lake Cheka. Located about eight kilometers from where Floriansky believed the meteorite exploded, Lake Cheka had a peculiar shape that matched that of a meteorite impact crater. Floryensky's associate, V.A. Koleyshev, believed that the lake might contain the large meteorite fragment that Kulik had
1: so desperately searched for. The group was able to extract silt specimens from the bottom of the lake, but testing revealed that the specimens were between 5,000 and 10,000 years old. There was no way it could have been created by a meteorite fragment in 1908.
0: Although Floriansky had essentially shut down the theory that an exploding alien spaceship caused the Tunguska event, it didn't stop some researchers from coming up with alternative theories to explain the explosion's incredible power.
1: With the Soviet Union becoming increasingly closed off from the rest of the Western world, non-Soviet researchers didn't have access to all the data that Floryansky had created. And they certainly didn't have easy access to the southern swamp. But some were still interested in trying to explain what caused the Tunguska event, even if they didn't have access to the latest data.
0: In 1965, American chemist Willard Libby published a paper theorizing that a small piece of antimatter was responsible for the Tunguska event. In simple terms, antimatter is a substance whose subatomic particles have the opposite charge of normal matter.
1: While exceedingly rare, antimatter particles do exist, but they're extremely dangerous. When antimatter and normal matter particles collide, they annihilate each other and produce extreme amounts of energy.
0: The idea that an antimatter explosion caused the Tunguska event was first proposed in 1941 by Lincoln La Paz of Ohio State University. With nuclear weapons still four years away from development at that point, La Paz felt antimatter was the only way to explain why there was no trace of a meteorite impact at the southern swamp.
1: An antimatter explosion could account for the Tunguska event's sheer destruction. However, most scientists agreed that the moment any antimatter hit Earth's atmosphere, it would immediately explode.
0: In Libby's 1965 paper, he argued that, quote, "...in searching for other natural means by which a large nuclear energy yield might be obtained, we are unable to find one other than the annihilation of antimatter with the gases of the atmosphere."
1: Assuming that enough of the antimatter had survived to make it through the atmosphere, Libby contended that an antimatter explosion would have led to an increase of radiocarbon in the atmosphere. To test his hypothesis, he examined the rings of two trees, one in Los Angeles
0: and one in Tucson, Arizona. Both trees showed a 1% jump in their radiocarbon in 1909, the year after the Tunguska event. The only problem was that the trees in the southern swamp showed no such increase.
1: With no evidence of a mid-air meteorite burst other than the silicate and magnetite spheres, Scientists kept coming up with out-of-the-box theories to explain the Tunguska event.
0: In the 1970s, some scientists theorized that the universe contained over a billion black holes, ranging in size from larger than the sun to smaller than a speck of dust. In 1973... Albert A. Jackson and Michael P. Ryan of Texas Tech University suggested that one of these tiny black holes might have caused the Tunguska event.
1: Jackson and Ryan postulated that in 1908, a compressed black hole collided with the southern swamp, passed through the entire planet, and re-emerged through the North Atlantic Ocean before continuing its journey through space.
0: However... This theory didn't account for the fact that there wasn't a second explosive event after the black hole exited the Earth's crust. There was also the small matter that a black hole would have most likely destroyed the entire planet as it passed through the core.
1: A few years after Jackson and Ryan presented their black hole theory, the Soviet Union finally began to share more of its scientific data. In the mid-1980s, Soviet Communist Party Chairman Mikhail Gorbachev implemented the policy of glasnost, or openness. Suddenly, scientific institutions around the world had access to the years of research the Soviets had collected on the Tunguska event.
0: Armed with this new information, the theory that the explosion came from a meteorite burst became the global standard. However, scientists were still baffled by the lack of physical evidence. Even if the meteorite had exploded before hitting the ground, there should have been more traces of it than a few globules of silicate and magnetite.
1: But as the Soviet Union gradually opened its doors to the rest of the world, scientists began to have more and more opportunity to study the Tunguska event. In 1991, the same year the USSR officially fell, Giuseppe Longo of the University of Bologna participated in the first-ever Italian expedition to the Southern
0: Swamp. As Longo combed through previous studies on the Tunguska event, he discovered the 1962 report from Kirill Floriansky that discussed the possibility that Lake Cheka was formed from a meteorite fragment's impact. Floriansky had concluded that Lake Cheka couldn't be an impact crater. But Longo wasn't so sure. He
1: noticed that Lake Cheka didn't appear on an 1883 map made by the Russian military. In fact, it didn't appear on a map until 1929, 21 years after the Tunguska event. He began to
0: suspect that somehow Floryansky's research was wrong. He was determined to lead an expedition to the southern swamp himself— and he believed he would conclusively solve the mystery. Coming up, Giuseppe Longo tries to determine
1: if Lake Cheka is actually an impact crater from the Tunguska event.
0: And now back to the story.
1: After the massive blast in 1908, many theories had been presented to explain the explosion behind the Tunguska event. But despite decades of research, Nobody was able to come up with a definitive explanation of what had happened.
0: However, in 1991, researcher Giuseppe Longo believed he had discovered the physical evidence that had proved so elusive to scientists. After reading a 1962 report by Kirill Florensky, Longo began to wonder if an impact crater could have created Lake Cheka, located eight kilometers from the epicenter.
1: Even if Lake Cheka didn't prove to be the result of a meteorite impact, Longo believed that its sediment layers could provide valuable data from the Tunguska event. He contacted colleagues from Italy, the United States, and Russia, who all agreed that Lake Cheka merited further study.
0: After several years of planning and securing funding, Longo and his associates set off for the southern swamp in the summer of 1999. Although over 80 years had passed since Kulik's first expedition, getting to the remote Siberian wilderness still wasn't easy.
1: First, the team had to take a Cold War-era cargo plane from a Moscow airbase to the central Siberian town of Krizneask. Then they had to transfer their equipment to a heavy-lift helicopter that was capable of transporting them directly to Lake Cheka.
0: After a bumpy, nerve-jangling six-hour flight, the team finally arrived at their destination. However, the swampy ground was too waterlogged for the helicopter to land. Eventually, the pilot decided to keep the craft hovering a few feet off the ground so Longo and his team could disembark and unload their gear.
1: As the group watched the helicopter fly away, The roar of its heavy rotors was quickly replaced by the incessant
0: buzzing of mosquitoes and horseflies. Although they were ill-prepared for the expedition's physical rigors, Longo's group was armed with the time's most sophisticated equipment. Unlike Kulik's early expeditions from over 60 years prior, they wouldn't be held back by insufficient technology.
1: To collect the data they needed, the expedition brought acoustic echo sounders, a magnetometer, sub-bottom acoustic profilers capable of mapping sediment layers, a ground-penetrating radar, devices for recovering sediment cores, an underwater camera, and GPS receivers.
0: For the next two weeks, scientists surveyed the lake from a catamaran, mapping the 1,500-square-meter bottom. Meanwhile, others excavated trenches along the shore to look for chemical markers from the explosion. Additionally, they collected core samples from nearby trees to see if there were any anomalies in their ring patterns.
1: As Longo and his team mapped the lake bottom, they discovered that it contained sediment layers over 10 meters thick. They estimated that it grew only a few centimeters a year, giving credence to Floryanski's estimate that the lake was thousands of years old.
0: However, the lake bottom had a funnel-like shape. It extended to a depth of 50 meters in its middle, with steep slopes leading back to the shore. If the lake truly was thousands of years old, it would most likely have a flat bottom from sediment accumulation. Longo
1: and his team wondered if perhaps the funnel-like shape was from a meteorite impact. It did bear a striking similarity to an impact crater found near Odessa, Texas. But there was still the problem of the deep sediment layer.
0: Upon further analysis, they discovered that the sediment was actually made up of two distinct layers. There was a thin, approximately meter-thick layer of traditional sedimentation resting on top of a larger, non-stratified deposit. In layman's terms, it appeared that sediment had only been collecting on the lake bottom for about 100 years, right around the time of the Tunguska event.
1: Adding fuel to the fire, The team's magnetometer returned evidence of a magnetic anomaly underneath the lake's deepest point. Further analysis pointed towards it being a meter-sized rocky object. The scientists wondered if it could be the meteorite
0: fragment that had created the lake. Over the next eight years, Longo and his team meticulously prepared their research, finally presenting it to the world in 2007. For the past 16 years, they had diligently worked to show that Lake Cheka was an impact crater. They hoped their research would garner enough support to convince the Russian government to excavate the lake in search of the elusive Tunguska meteorite fragment.
1: Unfortunately, their peers in the scientific community immediately found several faults with the Lake Cheka data. In 2008... A group of meteorologists, led by Gareth Collins of Imperial College London, published a paper dissecting Longo's reasons for believing Lake Cheka was an impact crater. Even though Lake Cheka had never appeared on a map prior to the Tunguska event, Collins argued that maps of the region lacked detail. He felt that it wasn't unusual for Lake Cheka to be missing from them.
0: Additionally, there were trees surrounding Lake Cheka far older than 100 years. If a meteorite impact had created the lake, the trees would have surely been obliterated in the process.
1: Collins also took issue with Longo's comparison of Lake Cheka to a similarly shaped crater near Odessa, Texas. First, Collins pointed out that like most impact craters, the Odessa crater was, quote, surrounded by a continuous blanket of ejected
0: material. Longo and his colleagues had reasoned that there was no ejected material from Lake Cheka because erosion from the lakeshore had increased the crater's dimensions. However, Collins pointed out that Odessa still had a layer of ejected material, quote, "...despite erosion of the crater rim and ejecta blanket in the approximately 63,000 years since formation."
1: Furthermore, Collins observed that most craters the size of Lake Cheka were part of what he called strewn fields, in which meteorite fragments form a series of craters in proximity to each other. Since there were no other craters around the lake, Collins found it, quote, hard to explain how Lake Cheka could have formed by impact in isolation.
0: Collins also believed that Lake Cheka's shape meant it couldn't have been a result of the Tunguska event. Lake Cheka had a visibly elliptical shape, meaning the meteorite fragment's impact angle would have been less than 10 degrees. However, most statistical models of the Tunguska event showed the meteorite descending at an angle between 30 and 50 degrees. With such an angle the impact would have created a circular crater.
1: While the irregular sediment layers were odd, Collins felt that it wasn't enough to prove the thesis Longo and his team had worked on for so many years. The majority of the scientific community agreed with Collins. Without the popular support Longo's team hoped for, the effort to dredge the bottom of Lake Cheka was doomed. Although scientists continued to study the Tunguska event, most agreed that it was the result of a meteorite airburst.
0: However, five years later, something happened to make researchers reconsider what they thought they knew. At 9.20 a.m. on February 15th, 2013, in Chelyabinsk, Russia, the sun was just beginning to rise. It was a clear, frigid morning, and many of the city's million residents were heading to work.
1: But the monotony of the morning commute was broken when a massively bright object flashed through the winter morning sky.
0: Captured on dash cams and cell phones, the object emitted a chorus of loud bangs that set off car alarms throughout the city.
1: Moments later, a shockwave pulsed through the air, shattering windows for miles around.
0: The whole event lasted mere seconds, but it left Chelyabinsk residents in shock. It seemed as though they had narrowly escaped annihilation by a meteor.
1: While there were no fatalities, around 1,500 people were injured. Most of the injuries came from being cut by broken glass.
0: Experts quickly descended on Chelyabinsk to try and determine what happened. Most believed the object was an asteroid. But what made it so odd was that it hadn't been detected before entering Earth's skies.
1: But once the object did begin its approximately 30-second flight through the atmosphere, multiple sensors were able to track its journey. Moving about 65,000 kilometers per hour, it came in at a relatively shallow angle and exploded about 15 or 20
0: kilometers above Chelyabinsk. Based off the damage it caused, experts calculated that the object was probably about 20 meters wide, and its explosion released approximately 500 kilotons of energy. Although it was 1 30th the strength of the Tunguska event, it was still the largest meteorite airburst since the 1908 explosion over the southern swamp.
1: Using data from infrasound wave sensors, scientists were able to quickly locate the impact zones from pieces of the Chelyabinsk meteorite. The largest weighed 650 kilograms and punched a seven-meter-wide hole in a 70-centimeter-thick layer of ice.
0: In addition to using technology in order to learn about the Chelyabinsk event, a team of researchers also visited over 50 villages to get a better sense of the object's trajectory.
1: The shockwave from the Chelyabinsk object knocked many of these witnesses off their feet, much like what happened to those who witnessed the Tunguska event. The light was so hot and intense that many eyewitnesses suffered skin and retinal burns. One man, who was about 18 miles from the point of peak brightness, even had the skin flake off his face from the object's radiation.
0: Although the Chelyabinsk meteorite didn't claim any lives, The power of its explosion was a sobering reminder of humanity's fragility within the cosmos.
1: Prior to the Chelyabinsk event, most researchers believed that similar-sized events occurred roughly every 100 years. But after examining the data, Gareth Collins estimated that it could be as close as every 10 By extrapolating the same information to the Tunguska event, Collins estimated that a similar impact could occur as frequently as every 100 to 200 years. Before, most researchers thought a Tunguska-level impact only happened about every 1,000 years.
0: However, Collins remained unconcerned that a massive meteor could wipe out millions of lives at any given moment the vast majority of the planet remains unpopulated, and chances of a meteor striking a large population center are slim. But
1: that doesn't mean they don't present any danger. If the Tunguska event's object had entered the atmosphere only a few hours later, its trajectory meant it would have exploded directly over Moscow.
0: Even though there would be almost no way to stop a large meteor from destroying a large population center, In 2014, NASA established the Planetary Defense Coordination Office. Still in operation in 2019, its responsibilities include tracking and characterizing potentially hazardous objects, communicating information about them, and leading the coordination of a response by the U.S. government if a threat is detected.
1: So far, the office has not detected any imminent threats. But as of 2018, NASA estimated only 25 percent of a believed 25,000 potentially hazardous asteroids had been discovered.
0: In addition to creating more of an urgency to detect threatening cosmic objects, the Chelyabinsk meteorite explosion also led to renewed efforts to solve the Tunguska event mystery.
1: In November 2013, about eight months after Chelyabinsk, A team led by Viktor Kwasnaycha of the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine analyzed rock samples collected from the southern swamp in 1978. Sure
0: enough, there were microscopic traces of meteoric rock. Additionally, the samples were recovered from a peat layer dated to 1908. This meant that any meteoric fragments would most likely be from the Tunguska event.
1: However, even this seemingly definitive proof that a meteorite airburst caused the Tunguska event was called into question. Some experts pointed out that the fragments could have come from any number of meteor showers that passed over the region prior to 1908.
0: As of 2019, there is still no concrete explanation on what exactly caused the Tunguska event. While most experts do agree that it was a mid-air meteorite burst, the lack of anything more than microscopic meteorite dust is puzzling.
1: What do you think, Molly? Do you agree with the general consensus? Or do you think there's a less conventional explanation for the Tunguska
0: event? Personally, I'm not convinced by any of the alternative explanations. I will say there is a compelling argument to be made that it was the result of a comet strike and not a meteorite. But with no recorded comet strikes in documented history, I find it very unlikely. What about you, Richard? What are your thoughts?
1: Well, as much as I would love to believe that a malfunctioning UFO or a black hole passing through the Earth caused the explosion, the simplest explanation does seem to be the likeliest. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like we'll ever get a definitive answer.
0: Agreed. While it was obviously a good thing the Tunguska event was far removed from a highly populated area, it also made it so much harder to figure out what caused it.
1: It certainly is a shame. But hopefully, what we've learned from the Tunguska event will give us a better understanding of similar events in the future. It certainly seemed to help inform analysis of the Chelyabinsk explosion.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And while learning more about the Tunguska event probably won't help us actually stop a meteorite from impacting a major city, it can help us understand the danger such an explosion would pose.
1: It may not be as exciting as sending oil drillers to blow up a massive asteroid like in the movie Armageddon, but continuing to research the Tunguska event may give us our best chance at surviving such a catastrophe. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode.
0: For more information on the Tunguska event, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Fire Came By, The Riddle of the Great Siberian Explosion, written by John Baxter and Thomas Atkins, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all previous
1: episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parkast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts.
0: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer.
0: Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode was written by Alex Benadon and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.